Morning, everybody. Today we are thinking about sanctification. And as a branch of theology, the doctrine of sanctification is all about trying to understand biblically the progressive change that we see in the lives of Christians, whereby they become more and more like Jesus. This is a change wherein they experience greater and greater freedom from sin. I like words, uh, so let's start by thinking about words. Uh, Paul begins his first letter to the Corinthian church with these words. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, sanctification, quite simply, just means becoming holy. In fact, sanctification means made holy. Or, alternatively, sanctification means holification, which isn't a word, but ought to be. Paul is saying, to translate him rather woodenly, to the church of God in Corinth, to those made holy in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Because sanctification means made holy. Now, holiness in Scripture is a word that has uh, several meanings. In the Old Testament, occasionally you might read about some article of furniture or food or clothing being holy. This means that that item has been set apart for God's exclusive use in one way or another. So then, the word holy means set apart for God's exclusive use. However, we also find that God himself is holy in a way that provokes people to to worship, to, to awe and wonder and to surrender, or to fleeing in panicked terror. The angelic beings close to God's throne in heaven cry out continually, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This wondrous quality of God that he is perfectly holy is something like the total perfection of his being in every way, especially the power of his moral perfection his purity, and that he is the source of all that is true, loving, right, wise, just, and beautiful. And Jesus shows us this holiness in both ways. Jesus shows us and teaches us what it means to live a holy life in the sense of being set apart for God's exclusive use. And Jesus reveals to us in Scripture God's moral and ethical perfection and the beauty of that. Jesus, shamed and dying on a cross, the glory of the holiness of God on full display, the most beautiful thing the world has ever seen. And in the future, his coming in glory. So Jesus reveals to us fully the glory of the holiness of God. Now, 
when the Bible talks about sanctification, it talks in both of these senses, being set apart for God's exclusive use and becoming more holy, becoming more like God by way of obeying God. In the New Testament, on most occasions when sanctification is used as a word, it's talking about that first thing, about how Christians are set apart for God's exclusive use the moment they first believe. So as soon as you believe in in Jesus, you're sanctified. We are all sanctified through faith in Jesus Christ when we first believed, fully sanctified simply as a part of conversion. So, for example, Jesus says to Paul in Acts chapter 26, uh, Jesus says to Paul, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The fact that we're Christians, that we've put our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, means that we are already sanctified, set apart for God's exclusive use. Only occasionally, only occasionally in the New Testament is the word sanctify used in connection with becoming more holy, becoming more like Jesus on a day-to-day basis. The one place I can find is in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, which Naomi read to us uh, this morning. In that context, yes, sanctify means becoming more like Jesus. Um, And as you remember, Paul spoke about avoiding sexual immorality, learning self-control, doing what is holy and honorable, not being controlled by passionate lusts, not taking advantage of others or wronging people, but rather loving one another, and indeed doing so more and more. So in in contrast to the Bible which uses the language of sanctification in these two ways, theologians, when they talk about the doctrine of sanctification, they're they're talking about something specific. Um, They are um, talking about that long process by which Christians learn to become holy in their manners, behaviors, attitudes, and actions, progressively becoming more and more like Jesus. Likewise, exercising more and more mastery over sin. This is the doctrine of sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus. And the characteristics of sanctification, so defined, are these. It doesn't matter if you can't memorize them. We'll just go through them quickly. What's sanctification like? Well, God and human cooperate in this process of sanctification. Sanctification increases throughout life. Sanctification is a work never completed in this life. Sanctification will be complete upon death and upon the return of Christ. And sanctification is beautiful and pleasing to God, to us as Christians, and also to the world. Talking about these five things will involve us coming to term 
coming to terms in turn with two polar truths, two things which are true simultaneously. Firstly, in Christ, we are fully able to master sin. Secondly, yet and nevertheless, in this life, we never actually fully get there. Um, Mary Crawford, a, a character in one of Jane Austen's novels, says, <clears throat> selfishness must always be forgiven, you know, because there is no hope of a cure. In context, of course, she is justifying her own selfish behavior. Mary Crawford, uh, we meet her in uh, the novel Mansfield Park. Mary Crawford and her brother Henry are fashionable, beautiful, and witty. But Jane Austen is signaling to her audience in a way that a 19th century biblically literate readership could not have missed. Uh, Jane is signaling to us that Mary Crawford is actually a deeply depraved person. And she is. Nevertheless, as part of that depravity, Mary articulates a basic belief that many people have about sin and sinful behaviors. Ultimately, there's nothing that can be done. People don't change. I can't change. You can't change. A leopard can't change his spots. It's a widespread belief, but it's not true. It's a lie. Change is always possible. There's no question that the New Testament teaches that a Christian born of the Spirit is always able to resist temptation. Always. Paul writes, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul comforts us by teaching that God will never let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. And when we are tempted, he will always provide a way out so that we can endure it. Jesus died on the cross in order to break the power of sin in our lives now. In celebrating that, however... The New Testament, in places, gives the sense, perhaps according to just the, the, the immediate reading, the plain reading, uh, it gives the sense that God expects sinless perfection from all converts to Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, Be perfect, therefore, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. And elsewhere, Jesus said, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And the Apostle John writes, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And throughout church history, throughout, um, the, throughout history, various movements have sprung up, have arisen that taught 
they taught that all converts to Christ need to be indeed utterly sinless. And that this sinless perfection was attainable. And that it was necessary to attain it in this life. And perhaps in many ways it's not too difficult to understand why that idea might attract people. Human beings are endlessly seduced by the idea that somehow we might be good enough to save ourselves. But it probably won't surprise anyone listening to me today to hear that such holiness movements where sinless perfection uh, is taught as something that is necessary and attainable and must happen, this so-called entire sanctification, where that's taught that is a misunderstanding of the Bible. To be sure, Christians are done with sin as a foundational attitude. We have renounced rebellion against God and the despising of our neighbors. We've turned around. No repentant Christian keeps on sinning in the sense of willfully rejecting God's word. But as John also writes in his first epistle, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And of course, Jesus, he teaches us to pray every day, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So then, as Christians, we do indeed learn to master sin. But we also know we, we never get there perfectly, not, not, not in this life. And in many of the things that we've talked about so far in this series of sermons, we've talked about things that God does, things that God alone does in this business of saving people. We've talked about election, regeneration, justification, adoption. That's stuff that God does and God does alone. But God and human beings cooperate in this process of sanctification. This is something that we work on together. God provides the power, we apply the power. God provides the power, we apply the power. And I won't say actually a great deal about this, seeing as it's one of the great topics of the New Testament. Uh, The New Testament actually is constantly talking about this. It is a process of learning God's way of doing things, but depending on him for the power to put the decisions of our wills into action. So then, for example, in the letter to the Galatians, Paul talks about walking in step with the Spirit, crucifying the desires of the flesh with its passions and desires, being led by the Spirit. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, patience, or forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He talks about the acts of the flesh being such things as sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, hatred, discord, jealousy, short-temperedness, 
selfish ambition, slander and gossip and such like. Um, The flesh, as a theological concept in Scripture, usually means, not always, but it usually means physical appetites and emotional needs driven by a sinful agenda. It doesn't necessarily mean the physical appetites and emotional needs themselves. Crucifying the desires of the flesh with its passions and desires then means the decision to crucify, to put to death, to be done once and for all with being ruled by the desire to satisfy those desires, those drives independent of God's rules, irrespective of the needs and welfare of others. And as we, as we battle with lack of patience or short-temperedness or covetousness or discontentedness or faithlessness, we discover that we, we don't, in fact, like Mary Crawford suggests, we don't have the power within us to change. But we do, in fact, have the power from God to change as we depend upon him for that power in Christ. New converts to Jesus Christ often discover that Christ supplies them with astonishing power to change radically, to be done with what we might call obvious or gross sin, domestic violence, lying, theft, addictions to gambling, sex, alcohol, or drugs. Overcome! Speedily and quickly, a new life in Christ. As we mature as Christians, though, we move somewhat from battling gross sin and obvious addictions to more ingrained and often more subtle and hidden attitudes and behaviors. We might find ourselves thinking about our families of origin or prayerfully considering aspects of our upbringing or having prayer ministry concerning perhaps traumatic or abusive episodes in our past. We become more aware of unloving, self-centered, or defensive ways of being that formerly we just took for granted, but now see that we must change. We, We are learning slowly to reprogram ourselves. Faith and repentance become routine occupations. Well, um, uh, having uh, Paul, having explained the gospel in depth and at length in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul uh, then writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Sanctification, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We we offer to God our whole selves, body and mind, as our logical act of worship. Jesus gave himself for us, we give ourselves 
for him. We reject the patterns of this world or worldliness, um, and we accept God's will and ways. At a practical level, this process of sanctification requires what we might call a devotional life, involvement with a faith community, receiving teaching and discipline, habits of prayer and fasting, Bible reading and meditation, devotional reading, and so on and so forth. And one of the reasons why we do this is that it is pleasurable. God puts it in our hearts, a desire for him and a desire to please him. We love pleasing him. It is pleasurable to serve God. My food, said Jesus, is to do the what satisfies me, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. When good fruit grows, generosity and grace, kindness, justice and mercy, patience, forgiveness, reconciliation, healing, whole communities are transformed by such fruit. We attend to sanctification because it is literally attending to what we were made for the representation of God to each other and to the creation. And thus, sanctification is humanification. It's beautiful and pleasing to God, to us, and to the world. But as we do this, as we see God more clearly in the face of Jesus Christ, we also therefore see ourselves more clearly we understand our own depravity with greater and greater clarity and insight. We, we grow in our understanding of sin, that it is not just simply the occasional giving in to temptation to steal a paperclip or lie about what time we arrived at work, but that it is indeed deceptive and complex. It reshapes itself and reinvents itself in our own lives so that we are indeed in battle with a deadly and clever enemy within ourselves. As Paul explains in Romans 7, desire to do something can spring up like weeds because we've been told not to do it. And so, growing in spiritual maturity necessarily includes understanding more and more keenly our own desperate need for grace. This might sound um, paradoxical, but the more we progress in holiness, the more like Jesus that we become, the more and more clearly we see we need to pray Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. It is the experience of grace, that knowledge, that we are indeed forgiven, loved, accepted, approved of, adopted, saved, justified. It's that experience of grace that drives us forward, not under law, but under grace. Holiness driven by the energy of gratitude. So then, sanctification is all about a process that is complex, becoming more and more like Jesus by way of mastering more and more sin. Not by doing more and more sin, but by mastering sin more and more. It's probably important that I clarify that. 
in Christ, we are fully able to master sin. No question. As we mature, we learn to do so more and more. And yet, secondly, in this life, we never fully get there. Do we ever? Of course. Uh, Theologically, it's understood that our souls are made perfect when our bodies die. In going to be with the Lord, we are freed forever from all indwelling depravity, finally and for all. And our bodies are made perfect at the resurrection when Jesus comes again. So then, we've covered those five basics I spoke of earlier. The characteristics of sanctification so defined are these. God and human beings, we cooperate in this process of sanctification. Sanctification increases throughout life. Sanctification is a work never completed in this life, but complete upon death and the return of Christ. And sanctification is a beautiful and pleasing thing, pleasing to God, pleasing to us, and also to the world. Sanctification. Usually in the Bible, this word means set apart for God's exclusive use, something that simply is so the moment that we believe. By faith in Jesus Christ, we are sanctified. In theology, this word is all about discipleship, becoming more and more like Jesus through the mastery of sin to a greater and greater degree. As we walk with Christ in the power of the Spirit, we are being sanctified, cooperating with him in our own restoration. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.